Welcome to this episode of Same, Same but Different. I am your host, Claudette Lapitan. Today, we welcome Samantha Sutherland, who is a consultant on female leadership development, networking and mentoring programs, and inclusive leadership skills. Samantha is also a chief storyteller, hosting Work 180's podcast, Equality Talks, and her own podcast, Women at Work. Samantha, I can really relate to your perspective in a lot of the content that you create and share, and I'm excited to introduce you to the listeners of this podcast. Can you tell us about yourself and why the topic of diversity and inclusion is important to you? Hi, thanks for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you. So I used to have a big corporate career, and then I made a really deliberate right-hand turn into diversity and inclusion. And I think really when I look back over my career, also just my life, I just have always been um, like fairness and justice are really important mm. to me and just always have been. Even as a kid, I got really indignant and outraged if I felt like things were unfair. And really, you know, with gender equality and all of diversity and inclusion work, it's about addressing that in a systemic way. And so I think it was like my kind of innate innate need for justice and fairness and then as I understood more about systemic barriers that uh, hold women back and people of colour and people with disabilities and people mm. who are older and all that kind of stuff then it then I really decided to focus my work in that area. Personally I left the corporate world for a few years when I found it too difficult to achieve what I wanted at work as well as um, you know what I wanted to do as a parent. I'd love for you to tell us a bit more about your research in that space what's important for us to know about this and how it impacts families and the workplace this is a really interesting topic I think because it's so layered so what you're talking about is really common mm. women are in a big career and they like it and they find it interesting and challenging and then they have children and balancing the two feels impossible Mm -hmm. But also a lot of women, of course, some women would rather stay home with their kids all the time. Like, and for those people, if that's available, amazing. But a lot of women actually want to keep working after they have children and keep having a fulfilling career. This is actually a phenomenon that's been researched out of Harvard University. It's called competing devotions. And I actually learned mm -hmm. about it from a colleague of mine called Amy Taylor Kabatz. And so competing devotions is the very idea that after you have a child, it doesn't mean that you don't want to have a career anymore. You want to be able to have both. Yeah. And like I said, this is not a made up thing. This comes out of Harvard. <laughs> and because the, the language about it used to make me feel, uh, I don't know, I used to coil away from the language of devotions. But actually, yeah. you know, we do love our kids and often we love being challenged at work and doing interesting, meaningful work. And so those mm. two things come into competition when we have children. And in my research, one of the main things that I found that women want is part-time and job share opportunities to still actually progress their careers. Alongside that, one of the other things that women want is career development opportunities and leadership development opportunities. And so mothers are saying they want careers still. They, a lot of them want to still have an interesting career. And then leaving the workforce. So I actually can't remember the stats on this, but they're of the the number of small businesses started during the pandemic, like the majority of them were started by women. I just can't remember the exact number. Mm. And that's because of exactly what you're talking about. 
particularly with increased pressures of the pandemic, homeschooling, everyone being at home all the time, all of the pressures of that and the overwhelm and burnout that's very real that so many people faced, a lot of women opted out of the workforce. So between May and September last year, wait, sorry, May and September this year, 2021, 90,000 women left the workforce compared to 25,000 mm. So it's a huge, huge wow. way towards women leaving the workforce. And that's because they're taking on the bulk of the mm. domestic and care work. So a lot of them are leaving and starting to starting up small businesses. So this is, in some ways, small business is more accessible. And so that's actually really great that people can do it. I mean, I've done it, right? Like I have my yes. own consulting business and mm. work for myself. But there are implications that are linked with that that not everybody thinks about. Or also you might know about them and do it anyway. So, for example, the fastest the fastest growing demographic of homeless people in Australia is women over the age of 55. Oh, gosh. And that has a lot to do with really low superannuation levels. So there's yeah. a major superannuation gender gap. When women leave the workforce to have kids, that affects it. They go back into low-paid jobs, that affects it. But when they opt out of, the, of employment and start small businesses, unless they're very diligent about making sure that they're paying themselves super, which many aren't, especially in early years, that effect that has this knock-on effect of imp- increasing the gender super gap, mm. and so there are. I think that it's great that there are more options available, but I also would prefer if the system meant that we didn't have to do that. We didn't have to yeah. opt out of the system in order to be able to have a career and have children. Why is it that you know? I think I saw something the other day, and they said that you know caregiving isn't considered a paid. You know, it, it isn't a paid. Uh, devotion like you're saying Um, and yet I know as a parent it takes up a lot of time and it's actually all consuming and it's 24 7 is there something we can do with that with putting some more value like monetary value towards that this is such a good question I do not know the answer to it but I'll tell you the things that I do know about this space Mm so the value of unpaid care and domestic labor in Australia is $650 billion, which is more than half of GDP, just over half of GDP. 70% of that is done by women. Mm. So when you are looking at, you know, middle managers who have two small kids and they've got a job, they're also doing 70% of 50% of GDP on top of that, totally unvalued. So it's a huge amount of work that's being done. The other thing, which I've just started learning more about. So in economics, there is a thing called natural resources. So that's like water and air and trees and coal, right? So natural resources in economics are assumed to be infinite and self-replenishing. In economics, women's domestic and care work is considered a natural resource. So (laughs) economics considers women's labor infinite and replenishing. (laughs) And so this is the issue, right? So so, I mean, and, and that's also why I don't know what the solution is, because really to value that $650 billion, who pays it? How does it yeah. get paid? How, it's like a total rejigging of our like economic assumptions mm. that base that underpin our economy. But, I'm, you know, I think that there are ways that that could happen, but I don't know exactly, you know, they're quite, they're sort of controversial. I can't imagine them ever being picked up, but like imagine if every guy who had a woman at home every executive who has a woman at home looking after the kids and doing all this stuff in the house actually had to pay her a monetary value for that yeah um, and also you know we know that care work even in paid care work like nursing or child care or aged care is um really underpaid those are the lowest paid industry so heavily female dominated and underpaid so yeah. 
yes, I don't know the solution, but I'm finding this really fascinating because I only just... It is really fascinating, yeah. I'm, I'm even noticing, I mean, I don't know, now that I think I've come, uh, my children are getting a little bit older, I've come out of the cloud of the early motherhood mm. stage mm. and I'm noticing, you know, friends who are having children now are quick to look at pyramid schemes or, or those types of small businesses trying to to still create an income for themselves or pursue a business but you know they're finding it really difficult to start I mean starting a business is just difficult without newborns hanging off you um, as it is and then you know the easiest thing is sometimes maybe trying this um, you know like a group kind of um, business approach so I'm finding it really challenging and everyone's just trying on their own so like you say it's really the system that we have to review and and it's quite a huge um uh, a problem to to address look how do you think in the family dynamic in australia is affected by progress in the space or lack thereof in your opinion what's changing or needs to change there yeah that's an interesting question too because you know, the political is personal and um, and the personal is political. And like the, the changes that we want systemically can't also happen without change in individual level and in individual houses. And I think actually the pandemic will help push a lot of this along because although there was a lot of burnout and overwhelm and people being, you know, doing way too much that it all the time. <laughs> yes. There also were some benefits, you know, so one woman who responded to my survey said that she was able to go back to full-time work for the first time ever because her husband was more available to help with the kids and help around the house. And I think another thing we're seeing is that, you know, pre-pandemic, most women I know had a husband who said that he couldn't possibly do part-time. Mm. He couldn't, his, his work would never allow it. He couldn't do his job part-time. It's not possible, he just couldn't do it. Pandemic shifted that overnight. Everyone was working remotely. Everyone was working around their children. But the other thing is that then a lot of men were like, oh, this is actually pretty good. Yes. I like being around my family. I like taking my kids to AFL training on Monday mm-hmm. nights. I like doing this stuff. And so then as people have returned to the office, it's not just working mothers who are saying yes. that they want flexibility and they want to be able to work from home. It's also fathers. And it's also people who enjoyed surfing before work. You know, yeah. like there's lots of, all reasons that people want to work flexibly are valid and so there's more acceptance of that now as well Mm. um so I actually hope that that will start to push it along but it's interesting because I so I interviewed Tracy Spicer for my podcast Women at Work and one of the things she said is that equality starts starts in the lounge room before it gets to the boardroom and so she was like I'm willing to have every fight and I'm a bit like that too like I'm willing to have every fight and not everybody wants to do that and that's totally fine. Yes. Um but I think that when if men contribute more in the home which is partly driven by um policies like can they be primary carer after the the if the woman is breastfeeding mm-hmm. you know birth, birth whatever. Um so part of that is there but and part of it is also them pushing for it and wanting to do it like yep. wanting to spend time with their kids and wanting to lighten the load on their wife and not just expect her to do most of it so I think it all really goes hand in hand it's interesting too because I also interviewed Jamila Rizvi for my podcast and I asked her something like you know what's the biggest thing you can do to 
to help progress your career as a woman. And she said, marry the right person. Yeah. Which is great. <laughs> However, often what happens is you think you've married the right person and everything's great and it's all equal and you both have good careers and then you have kids and suddenly yeah. it's like, oh, right. I didn't realize that this is mm. what I was in for and things aren't equal and it's too late because then you've got yes. a kid and, you know, you can't, you're not repicking your partner at that stage, uh, hopefully. Yeah. I've had but, that same advice, Samantha. Right. That's crazy. <laughs> that is funny. And I mean, I think the other thing that I think is happening is that younger women, uh, their expectations are different. So they are um, more educated than mm-hmm. older generations. They're more educated than men. Now there are more women who leave tertiary education than men. They earn good money. They're economic decision makers. They're financially independent. And so I think there is more of this younger generation where they're like, I'm not putting up with that. Yes. Uh, and I think that, that will help change stuff as well. Yeah. yeah. Even the most basic things I remember from um, you know, something that you mentioned, having, you know, change tables in, in men's rooms, in, yeah. in the men's bathroom. I remember, you know, you, you didn't have that in that in this day, and, you know, when, when I was having babies anyway. I, I, I sound like it was decades ago, sorry. But, but uh, it was such <laughs> it a feels like change. It's so recent. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it, it is interesting that it takes a pandemic for families to kind of reassess where the priorities are for sure. Yeah. Yeah. So I've, I've been hearing a fair bit about the great resignation and how individuals and businesses are thinking about work. And I suppose that ties in with this as well. How do you think uh, women and marginalised groups are being impacted, uh, you know, further to what you've already mentioned by COVID and this concept of a great resignation? Well, that's a good question. I, I haven't thought about it from an intersectional perspective specifically mm. previously. The great resignation is just for anybody who doesn't know what that is in America yes. right now, there's like mass resignations across the country because America has pretty poor working conditions mm-hmm. just generally. And having spent the last couple of years working from home, a lot of people in America are saying that's enough. I'm not going back to a job where I have to commute for two hours to sit in the office for 10 hours. And they're, they're even more chronically overworked and overwhelmed yeah. than in Australia. Uh, the interesting thing though, is that it is coming out here too. So PwC did their, I think it's called the future of work. They do mm-hmm. an annual research future of work thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and they found that 38% of people are going to be looking for a new job in January, which is a huge amount. So that is actually like an Australian version of our great resignation. Yeah. Because if you imagine losing 40% of your workforce, I mean, obviously you'd be replacing them, but you lose so much knowledge and expertise and operational skills and stuff. And so it's actually going to have a huge impact on many, many businesses. I think... You know, to answer your question about how it's going to affect women and other marginalized groups, one of the impacts of it is that employers have to put more in place to support um, all their employees. So they have to attract people. So if they're losing 40%, they need to be able to attract and they want to be able to attract the best. Uh, They need to be able to retain people and make sure that they're developing and staying because losing 30% of losing 40% is a huge, huge thing for a company. And so actually, if you lose just 10% of that great resignation, you're doing hugely well comparatively. Uh, And so what that means is that there's a lot more policies being put in place and inclusive leadership practices to try and attract and retain the right people. I think that in general, companies that understand the value of inclusion understand the value of diversity are the ones who are going to be more likely to be putting these in you know they they kind of go hand in hand Mm. and so what I think it could mean is that companies who value 
employing women and other marginalized groups and different types of diversity are going to be even better companies for those people to go and work for. And everybody knows that there's going to be a lot of people on the move. And so it's a pretty good opportunity to find the companies that are really doing that kind of work that are the types of places that you want to be employed. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's so tell us more about those changes that you're expecting to see for workplaces. I know where I'm working at Iris, they've created um, a few more annual leave days to make extended um make extended availability of long weekends um oh. so you can have like six more long weekends over over the year each um each individual so that that makes it a little bit more i don't know i suppose um attractive to work there because they're trying to make sure that you've got time for your mental health as well because yeah. you know i don't know about you but when sometimes when i take a holiday with the children i need another holiday after yeah. it <laughs> so you know i think it's an opportunity for that but what other changes do you think will make workplaces more attractive for people? Well, I mean, I think it's stuff that we've talked about already. So ongoing flexibility, more part-time mm. and job share options, visible leadership of inclusive practices, yeah. um, you know, better policies for parental leave, non-gendered yeah. parental leave, policies like what you're talking about, putting mental health days in place, um, all those types of things. Like there's you know, you can, there's always a laundry list and it's kind of like, well, what are the ones that make the most, have the biggest impact and make the most difference? But, you know, yeah. women's leadership development programs mm. would fall under that category as well. Um, and what yeah. do you think about working virtually to the effect of, um, you know, how does that affect people working virtually? I, and I, I thought I had, have been speaking to people leaders saying that, you know, it's important for us to connect people face to face. Um, but also there's pushback from some employees and some people leaders who have loved not having to come in face to face. Mm. What's the ideal balance do you think for success in a really inclusive workplace? I mean, it's hard to, I don't know if there's an ideal. What I'm hearing is that that a lot of leaders are saying that there is value in meeting face to face and not just leaders, right? So like if you're yeah. uh, a young worker who's just joined the workforce and you're mm -hmm. fully remote, it's very hard to like pick up mm -hmm. the phone and talk to someone senior. It's really hard to have casual conversations. And so learning can be affected for people as well. Anecdotally, I think that the demographic who most want to stay fully remote are parents with small children because life is very hard and full in that mm -hmm. stage. And I think offering people as much flexibility as you can to choose how they do it is a really good idea. Um, I do think that there's a danger that if you have partly people working from the office and partly people working remotely, that the people who are working remotely get forgotten and left behind. Mm. And so I think you need to be really deliberate about putting things in place to make sure that they get considered, their ideas get heard, they get included in casual conversations as well. And lots of leaders are saying, that maybe two days in the office where everybody's there at the same time is good. And then around that people can choose what they want. So, but then, you know, you've got like Atlassian who have gone fully virtual and no one has to go to an office ever. They've obviously found ways to make it work. I think no matter how you do it, it is a transition. Like I think what's happened is the pandemic started, everyone just started working from home and then everyone was like, I guess this is how we do it now. And I think yeah. it's useful to, to actually create the culture, like, be really clear. Okay. This is what we're doing. This is how we're doing it. If everybody's remote, this is how we're connecting people. This is how often this is when this is what those conversations look like to try and yeah. make it a consistent experience for everybody. 
Yes, yeah, so I suppose um, people in leadership teams really need to be truly decisive about what values they're trying to reflect in these policies that we're creating in this whole new world of, of work, right? Well, um, and also co-create it, you know, like yes. I don't think that it's always that leadership know best and they should tell everyone what to yes. do. I think that you can get together, like, of course, there has to be a final decision maker. But mm. when you bring people together, I think that they can be really creative in the solutions they come up with, especially if they have a vested interest in getting a particular solution. So there's this example, I don't know if you've heard about this, this is pre-pandemic. This company in New Zealand decided that they were going to, just a small company, you know, it probably had 100 employees. Mm -hmm. They were going to um, trial doing, everyone had to work four days, but they would get paid for five. And they gave them a six-week lead-up time. And in that six-week lead-up time, they had to all, each team had to decide what that looked like. So maybe you want to do school hours every day. Maybe you want to have Wednesdays off. Maybe you want to have Fridays off. You have to think about what the requirements of the business are, what everyone in the team wants. You decide as a team how you solve that. They also put in all these performance metrics um, that had to be measured before and after. And then they did, they, so they did six-month lead-up to prep, three-month trial. At the end of the three-month trial, every single performance measure in the business had increased. And additionally, you have a huge amount of loyalty from the people who now are being given a lot of autonomy over what their work hours look like. They're being paid 20% more than they were being paid before. Well, you know, they're being paid the same, but they get 20% yes. more time off. Um, and the, the, the goodwill that you generate from that is like hugely valuable. Mm. And so, and each team had a different solution for what that four day work week looked like. And so what my point there is that people, particularly, as I said, when they have a vested interest, can actually be really creative in yeah. coming up with solutions for stuff. Mm. So if you're a leader and you're trying to figure out the best way forward, hear from your people. Yes. Ask them what they want. Ask them why they want that. Ask them how that, what they want meets their needs and the business needs. And you might hear something that you never would have thought of yourself. Yeah, I love it. That sounds great. I like to when I'm talking to businesses about diversity, equity, inclusion, I like to talk about bridging the gap between good intentions and effective action. Can you tell us about a time where you yourself have had good intentions, but missed the mark when it came to your actions? Oh God, that feels like a very personal question. I know, <laughs> it does, doesn't it? You probably haven't had one for a while because we learn we learn quite quickly, don't we? It's like we, we put our foot in it <laughs> quite a bit in early days. Well, I mean, I suppose I think a time recently was when I was actually interviewed for another podcast yeah. and I was talking about, I forgot what the question was, what I remember was my answer because I was like, oh God. Yeah. Um, and I was talking about something to do with, anyway, I can't even remember, but what I ended up saying was, men versus women and then said or and then it ended up being this versus that or this versus that or this versus that the whole way through and I didn't even realize that I was saying it but of course it's not about it's not a face-off it's no. not versus anything the whole yeah. thing is that I work in inclusion and that's really non-inclusive language and I was trying to illustrate that you can have different you know, different types of diversity or different groups who have different needs. And, but it's, 
actually what you need to do is kind of consider everyone. So maybe that's an example of where I, the language I used, yeah. I, I watched it back, was like, oh, God, I can't believe I said it's that. It's really powerful <laughs> having the, the language. And if you make the wrong slip, it, it can be really impactful um, and, and derail the the message that you're trying to um, give, which is part of this podcast is like um, like we did earlier, give give try to explain um, some of the language, especially, you know, if you're not doing diversity inclusion work, some of this language is really new. Mm, um, and then yeah. you can kind of, um, yeah, put people off right away when you, yeah. when you use the wrong language. In a, in a business, with your experience, you've had so much experience talking to so many businesses in your own consulting work. I do talk about three points of impact when trying to make change as an individual, what changes do you need to make to be more inclusive? And as teams, what, what changes do we need to make? And as an organization, where do we stand around diversity inclusion? With your experience, what would you suggest all organizations implement right away? If you were to pick, you know, one thing it, to, to make effective change at these three levels, that's an interesting question because I think a lot of the times when people think about diversity and inclusion, we think there's this whole, there's a list of 50 things that you could do. And so we yes. just should like prioritize them and go through them in order. And in fact, Regnan, who is the research arm of Pendle Investment Group, recently did some research into this. So what's the laundry list and what order should we do them in? Yes. And what they found was that it's not the list. <laughs> so, <laughs> so in fact, the biggest enabler of whatever you put in place is inclusion and inclusive leadership practices. So I think if you're thinking about the point of impact organizationally, it is that you have very strong inclusive executive leadership and that they understand the benefits of DEI and they understand why they're doing it and they are fully on board, not just lip service with the fact that this is an important part of making the business successful. How do you create that, Samantha? Well, I think it starts with the business case. And so there is a really clear business case for diversity and why it makes a difference to the bottom line. So boards now are really talking about it's part of their fiduciary duty yes. to have a diverse um, leadership team and diverse organization. And I think really exe most executive leadership across the, like the ASX 300 is understands that, right? Like mm. particularly the big company, ASX 100, all of them understand it. So they need to first understand it, but then also start putting those practices in place. And I mean, when you think about inclusive leadership, for me, it actually goes well beyond DEI. It's about making work a bit more human and yes. like understanding people's humanity at work. So like I uh, read a lot of Brene Brown and she talks a lot about how, um, what courageous leadership looks like. And it's like having honest conversations, giving fair and honest feedback, being really clear about expectations from people, understanding what their outputs are, understanding that their external life impacts. And all of that is just like, be a nice person. Don't be a sociopath. Understand your people, care about your people. Like, and understand as well that when you care about your people, the whole work experience is better. You know, one of the reasons why I am passionate about this stuff is because I think we spend most of our lives at work. And if you have a bad work, you have a bad life. Yeah. And almost everybody has had an experience of that where you work for a manager who's a total jerk or, you know, you're undermined all the time or your, in, your input isn't valued. And so if you think about that, the opposite of all of that is inclusive leadership. So how do you value people? How do you give them autonomy? How do you let them have real input into their work? How do you teach them and bring them on that development journey? 
all of that stuff is what inclusive leadership is. I and if you like... have leaders who aren't doing that stuff, you probably just need new leaders. Yeah, exactly. I, I've actually just finished the Brene Brown Dare to Lead training. Oh. And it, it's just really, really was insightful to me at this point of my career, having those that type of training about, like you say, being a leader that is bringing their whole self in mm. and, and understanding that other people should be able to do that in the workplace as well. And I was looking back to when I started my very first job and I was 14 at mm. Kmart and I was told during our training to take your, you know, oh, you're coming to work to take your, you know, um, outside hat off and you put your work hat on mm. and that was actually part of our training to come to work and I thought wow that's actually how I've come in to a lot of things in my early career to be oh no you can't show your feelings here you can't show you're frustrated you can't tell you know people what you really think you've got to be really careful don't bring don't be feminine don't be young don't be mm. all of these things when really all of the training I've got from Brene Brown's Dare to Lead workshop was um, actually be your authentic self and it's really refreshing but I can see how that would be different how it's a struggle because we have been trained I don't know about you what was your experience when you were younger before you lent into this w oh, were totally. you trained that way yeah definitely mm. and in fact I have two really terrible stories about that that are not my own but about I did the chief executive women leadership development program when I was working in corporate mm -hmm. and uh, one of the women who did that program with me, this is probably almost 10 years ago. Uh, one of the women who did the program with me had, was working for one of the big law firms and she had just had a baby. And she, I've told this story so many times. She came back to work when the baby was three months old and which is tiny. So it's actually, uh, it'd be really hard to leave a baby that little. I mean, lots mm. of women do it, but it's, uh, it's tiny. But mm. she said, I never mentioned my baby at work. I don't want people to think I can't do my job anymore. I don't want them to think I'm not committed. And I was like, that's devastating. Yeah. It's like the biggest thing that's ever happened to her. She can't even mention it at work, let alone the actual real ongoing impact of having a newborn at home. So she would have been sleep deprived. Her body hasn't recovered yet. She's trying to squeeze back into a power suit. Mm -hmm. Like that's such a horrible work environment where the expectation is that mothers are so unable to perform that you can't even yes. talk about the fact you have kids. I bet guys aren't worried about that in the, that organization. Yeah. Um, and then another story is in a big investment bank, uh, a good friend of mine used to work in this place and one of her colleagues, her husband was dying of cancer mm -hmm. and she came into her performance review and they said, you need to leave home at home and be yeah. at work when you're at work. Mm -hmm. And this is her life partner is dying at home and there's just n not even a flicker of empathy yeah. towards what's going on in her life which is horrific yeah, and so when horrendous. you think about like bringing your authentic self to work like sometimes I think people feel like it means like oh we need to like be like we'd be at a party and that's not like true. overshare and yeah, <laughs> yeah but like it's like also having basic humanity and yeah. understanding the impacts that people have in their lives that are gonna affect them at work because we all work so much you can't not have it affect your work mm. um and so yeah I think that kind of like bringing humanity back to the workplace is actually a really important 
piece of the whole thing. Yeah, I'm hoping that that change is um, continuing, definitely. I heard someone say something that you never hear of anyone saying, oh, you're, <laughs> you're a working dad. Whereas, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas totally. we always get working. How mom. does he do it all? <laughs> I know, how do you do it? And you look it. great too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, there's some pretty funny articles after Perichet, um got in after um, Gladys Berdiklin, uh stepped down because he his wife is pregnant with their seventh baby. Wow, and so there, yeah. there were a number of articles that were like, how does he do it? Or how yeah. will he possibly be pregnant <laughs> with six children at home? Which, although, you know, it doesn't solve the issue that we're kind of mocking the fact that a man doesn't get asked about that, but I think it yes. helps to highlight it, right? It helps it does. to show how absurd it is. Yes, it does. Oh, although, Samantha, if you don't mind me asking, I did see another bit of research saying that, you know, the middle-aged white man is fatigued by all of this diversity and inclusion work. Oh, totally. Work. This is a thing, yes. Yeah. What so, did you think of that? Yeah. So there was two, there's two things side by side. So one is that, yes. yeah, the people are fatigued. They are gender fatigued. Yes. And it's like, it's not solved, not by a long <laughs> way. And still people are sick of talking about it. And that's actually quite um, a concern, right? Because then how do you... Exactly. And then the piece of research you're thinking about, I think just came from the Dream Collective. Right? Yes. That's the one where so that's they correct. said that more than half, 52, I think it was, percent of men think that they are disadvantaged because yes. there's now affirmative action mm-hmm. thing, action in place. So there's a few things about this because, so one thing is merit, right? So merit is has been shown to not actually be a thing. There's a lot of people who still think, oh, I just want to hire on merit. We want to have the best person for yes. the job. Um, but actually when you look at, I don't know, like senior politicians, right? Is it possible that the only people who are meritorious are people who all look the same as each other? <laughs> Seems unlikely, right? Maybe the way we're measuring merit isn't actually quite right. How can people find out more about your work? I, I wish I could talk to you for longer because I know that you've got so much in common and I've got so much to ask you about. <laughs> for now, um, how can people find out more about you and your work Tell us about the podcasts that you're part of, your own podcast, and how can listeners of this podcast engage further with you at this point? So my podcast is called Women at Work mm-hmm. by Samantha Sutherland. You can find that on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcast. And it is in a current season is about women speaking up. Um, and I actually probably talked about very similar topics to you. Why do you care about this? What Fabulous. Can we do in this space? And I just had one of my favorite podcast interviews ever on that with a woman called Koa Beck, who wrote a book called White Feminism, which is where I started to understand this economic theory about women's labor being infinite. Um, mm. And that's a really fascinating podcast. You can find me at my website, which is www.samanthasutherland.com.au. And I do all types of workshop facilitation and women's development leadership, uh, women's leadership development and coaching. Um, and so you can engage with me there. And you can find me on social media and LinkedIn and stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I'm so glad a friend of ours, mutual friend, has introduced us. So I'm really glad to be connected with you. And I, I think she's hit the nail on the head by connecting us. So really, really pleased that we've been able to make the time. I know it's a busy time of year. So Thank you so much for your time today and for your insight. I hope to speak to you again really soon, Um, Samantha. Thanks for all the work that you do and for your thoughts today. Thank you so much for having me. 